Good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to be with you. It's good to be worshiping together with you in the house of the Lord. We're already more than halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're continuing on our journey to become 21st century apprentices of Jesus. Disciples who make disciples. That was Matthew's goal in writing, and it must be our goal in studying his inspired writing. Last week, Pastor Todd took us through chapter 18, in which we discovered the necessity of confronting sin in the community of Jesus' followers, and the goal, which is not condemnation, but reconciliation with God and with between believers as a result. The word forgiveness was not used in that passage, but the idea was obviously present. A fellow disciple who has been recovered through loving confrontation would still face the challenge of being reconciled to those they have hurt. So this prompts Peter to raise a practical question. What are the limits of forgiveness? Let's stand together and I'm going to read the passage. <clears throat> then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus hits us with the conclusion. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
You can be seated. <clears throat> so this message can easily be divided into four parts, but they're not equal. <laughs> In the very first verse, we have Peter's question related to the limits of forgiveness. In verse 22, we have Jesus' short answer, unlimited forgiveness. And then he tells the parable, which takes up most of this passage, the cost of forgiveness. And then finally, he concludes in the very last verse with the cost of not forgiving. So let's take a look at these one at a time. The human expectation is that there are limits to forgiveness. Peter said, how often will my brother sin against me? How often? Because don't we have experience of dealing with people, maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe coworkers, and they don't just sin once, they have a pattern. And Peter goes, uh, how often? Because I get tired of this after a while. Not only that, but he says, how often will my brother sin against me? Now it's personal. When Todd preached last week, he was talking about the importance of going to a brother who sins and seeking to bring about reconciliation, seeking to bring about repentance in the brother so that he can be brought back in. But that's kind of generic. That's not sin against me. Because let's face it, it's a lot easier to deal with sin against some other people. But how often do we struggle with the sin against me? You hear me? This is, this is something that's, he's getting very personal about this. And then Jesus answers him. Oh, well, Peter says, um, seven times? You know, the Jewish tradition said that you only had to forgive somebody three times. So Peter's being very generous here. He's going, I'm, I'm offering seven times. Is that, is that enough? As a matter of fact, he may have even thought he was exaggerating. Oh, no, no, Peter, you don't, have to, you don't have to forgive that often. But instead, Jesus' answer, the divine obligation is unlimited forgiveness. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Surprise. Whether it's 77 or in the older versions it says 70 times 7, Jesus is using hyperbole to express that unlimited forgiveness is to be granted to fellow disciples. You notice Jesus, that, that Peter called him a brother. How, how often shall my brother sin against me? And so Jesus says, if, if you want... If you're going to forgive a brother for sinning against you multiple times, if you're keeping count, 
you've missed the point. So it, it doesn't matter whether it's 77 or 70 times 7. The hard reality, because it is hard, is that we should never stop forgiving. So now I'm going to go into the actual story in which Jesus explains the cost of forgiveness. Getting ahead of myself. So you, we just read the story together. You've got a king. He's settling accounts with his servants. And one servant, I'm going to call him Tom, because I find that saying first servant and second servant is going to get awkward. So I'm going to call this servant Tom. Tom is brought to him, and he owes 10,000 talents. Now, since we don't use talents as our currency here, it probably doesn't mean a lot. Certainly 10,000 is a large number. But a talent is the largest piece of monetary value that was known in that culture. And the number 10,000 is the number that is the largest single word to describe a number value. So Jesus says, it's a huge quantity, even if it's just one talent, but with 10,000 talents, you're talking about an astronomical sum. Needless to say, the man can't repay. He and his family are to be sold to repay. Now that's something we don't do these days, but back in the ancient Near East, a king, especially a king who had slaves, would be in the position that if the slave owed a sum and they couldn't pay the sum, okay, I'll sell you to somebody else. I'll sell you and your wife and your family and everything that you have in order to begin to make payment for this debt. Now that might sound harsh, but the king was within his rights. He is the one who had loaned the money to the servant in the first place. Even though the word loan doesn't appear in the ESV, it does occur once when the king responds to him later on. He loaned him the money. Now, he probably didn't loan 10,000 talents all at once. It was probably something that was done over time. And I don't, I don't know whether this guy owed 10,000 talents because he liked to play the ponies and, you know, the chariot races that were going on in Rome, or if he wanted to invest in cryptocurrency. <laughs> or maybe he was kind of like our government, where you just spend more and more and more than what you actually bring in to the point where you're trillions and trillions in debt. I'm not surprising anybody with this, right? So I don't know why it was that he owed that amount of money. It probably was gradual rather than all at once. But he wasn't going to be able to repay this debt. And so the king says, I'm out 10,000 talents. I'm going to sell you and your entire family and all that you have so that you can help to pay back what I've lost. Tom begs for patience. Patience. 
and time to repay. And big surprise, the king has pity on Tom and cancels the debt. Now that's great for Tom. He no longer owes a sum that he can never pay back. This is, this is awesome. But remember that a loan involves both a lender and a, and a debtor. Tom's the debtor. The king is the lender. All the money that the debtor, Tom, owed to the king, it's been canceled. That means he's not going to repay any of it. Who's out? The king. He's just lost 10,000 talents because it's never going to be paid back because he canceled the debt. And that's one of the things that's important to realize is that when it comes to forgiving a debt, whether we're talking about now or back then, there's no such thing as just erasing it and everybody's happy. If you erase somebody's debt, they're free, but the person who loaned them the money in the first place is on the hook for that amount of money that they no longer have. So just so, so that we realize that about this story. So Tom, enjoying his newfound financial freedom, goes out and he finds a fellow servant. The fellow servant owes him 100 denarii. Now again, I don't think many of us are using denarii these days, but a denarius was basically one day's wage. So if you figure the number of days that an average worker would work over a year, this was the equivalent of about three or four months of pay. So it's not an insignificant amount. And so he goes to the servant and he says, I want you to pay what you owe. But he doesn't just say, please. You notice from the story, he throttles the guy. Pay what you owe. That's a problem. Jerry, that's the name of the second servant. Okay, you got the Tom and Jerry reference. That's good. <laughs> Jerry's debt is large, but not compared to Tom's. And even though Jerry begs with almost the same words that Tom used, says, give me, be patient with me, and I will pay everything. Tom refuses, and he throws Jerry in prison until he can repay. No honor is shown to Jerry, and it brings shame upon Tom. One of the things that's a little hard for us to grasp, maybe some of you younger folks have no trouble with it, but we live in a culture that has for a long time been oriented towards you're either guilty or you're innocent. It's either right or it's wrong. But many cultures in the world, including this culture, are an honor-shame culture. And you've heard that before if you've been here for any period of time. The king did a very honorable thing in forgiving the debt of Tom. Tom did a very dishonorable thing, a shameful thing, by refusing to forgive Jerry. 
So no honor is being shown to Jerry and, and Tom's actions bring shame upon him. But they not only bring shame upon him, they bring shame upon the king. Because Jerry is one of the king's slaves. He's supposed to honor the king. And instead of honoring the king, by acting in the same way that the king did, he's acting in, I demand justice. You owe me this money, you pay me now. Tom's lack of mercy greatly dishonors the king. But that's not the end of the story. The other slaves, they see what Tom has done to Jerry and they're appalled. And they go to the king and say, King, do you know what's going on here? This guy that you just forgave this huge debt to is refusing to forgive Jerry. And so the king summons Tom to himself. <laughs> and he, he says, why is it that you will not show the same mercy to Jerry that I showed to you? I forgave you all that debt, literally all that loan, and you won't show mercy and forgive a small debt that is owed you by somebody else? Won't even give them time to pay? You're gonna throw them in prison? Well, because you have shamed me and you have shamed him, I am now gonna throw you in prison until you can pay back your debt. This is a really serious story. But it's all about money. You know, why is Jesus using a financial story to illustrate the spiritual concept of forgiveness? The word forgive, which we don't often think about, basically means to release something, to let go of something, or to cancel something. And the Greek language of the New Testament uses the same Greek words to describe spiritual forgiveness as it does financial forgiveness or financial cancellation. And so Jesus is using something that is common in his culture and the language would have, would have been, it's the same words used to describe both things. Not only that, in the Greek Old Testament, Remember, we're talking about a Jewish audience here with the Gospel of Matthew. In the Old Testament, which they would have been very familiar with, forgiveness of debt was to take place every seven years. Anybody that had a loan out to somebody else in the Israelite community had to simply cancel the debt. So this concept of canceling the debt was something that the Jewish people were already familiar with. And that's why Jesus could use this financial story to illustrate a spiritual concept. So what is the point that Jesus is making? Let's take it a step at a time. 
First of all, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven and a king. So I think we know who the king is. No question about that one. The debt, the servant's debt, is an astronomical sum that cannot be repaid. Remember, now we're talking about what is the point that Jesus is trying to make. He's saying that the debt that we owe to God is also a debt that we cannot pay. That's a serious situation to be in. That's the reason that forgiveness is such an important concept. Okay, but some of us may very well say, well, you know, my debt's not that big. I mean, I've never committed adultery, and I've never committed murder, and I've never stolen from anybody, and, and I've never borne false witness to my neighbor. So, like the rich young ruler, hey, I've kept all these things from my childhood. <laughs> At least we think that our sins are not as bad as those bad people who are in prison, for example. But here's the problem. We tend to think of sin in terms of its impact upon us, upon each other. And the real problem is that sin is always against God. So look at what, what is said in the lower portion from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. These are the words of David. And you remember what David was known for. Yeah, he was a good king for the most part, but he committed adultery. Then he tried to cover it up. And then he committed murder when he couldn't cover it up. Those are really heinous sins. But when he is confessing his sin and he is asking for forgiveness, he recognizes, Lord, you are most honorable. You are holy. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And that troubles some people because they're going, but wait a minute, what about the, the adultery and the murder and the cover-up? Yeah, those are all true. Those are all humanly very powerful things. But the thing that we have to get is that sin is always, first and foremost, against the holiness of our honorable God. So it doesn't matter, in a sense, whether that sin is, whether you're a serial killer or whether you're somebody who just told a little white lie. It's still sin. It's still infinitely against God. It is a debt that we cannot pay. Are you getting the seriousness of this?
to continue on with the illustration. The initial servant, Tom, who could not pay, fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. It's a confession, in essence. And the great thing is, the king is merciful. He has pity on this guy and he releases him from his debt. He forgives him of his huge debt. But remember, this is the cost of forgiveness. It didn't cost Tom anything. It cost the king immensely. And that is the way our sin is against God. We can be forgiven like the servant was forgiven. But somebody's bearing the cost. Who is it that bore the cost for our sins? Jesus. God was willing to send his only son and to have him die in our place to take our sins so that we would be freed from that condemnation. Look at the cost. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the New Testament writers say the same thing. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In Philippians, being found in human form, he humbled himself, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which by the way was very shameful. Jesus took the shame that we deserve. He paid the debt that we could not pay so that we could be forgiven. So then Tom finds Jerry and we already know what ensued from that. He owed him only a hundred denarii. But there's no mercy shown. No pity shown. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. That's in direct contrast to what the king did for Tom. The king was going to sell him, but when the servant pleaded for patience, pleaded for mercy, essentially, 
he was willing to forgive. This contrast between Tom and Jerry, Jerry's pleading for the same thing, and Tom won't have any part of it. To fail to reflect his merciful, forgiving heart is evidence that we have no appreciation for how he has dealt with us, and we have dishonored him. Because remember, now we're talking about forgiveness, what it is that we owe to our brother. An unforgiving spirit reflects an unforgiven state. And that's what we see in the illustration with Tom. He has an unforgiving spirit. And that reflected so badly upon the king that the king said, eh, deal's off. Now you're going to pay. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So, at this point, the other servants are involved. They saw how magnanimous, how generous, how forgiving the king had been to Tom. And they saw how unforgiving, how childish, how greedy Jerry was, or excuse me, Tom was towards Jerry. And so they went and they told the master. And of course, the master, the king, is God, who is well aware of what we have in our hearts in terms of our attitude towards forgiving our brother. Once they were told, God would not stand idly by while those supposedly serving him dishonor his merciful forgiveness. He will judge and he will uphold his honor. Look at what James has to say about it. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You have to wonder when James penned this, if he was thinking of that incident, if he was thinking of when Jesus told that story about forgiveness, because that's exactly what happened to Tom in the story. Judgment was without mercy to him because he had shown no mercy. It's a very serious thing. And that brings us to the conclusion Look at verse 33. And I can't read it <laughs> because it's too dark. The king was angry with him and he threw him in prison until he should pay all the debt. We're talking about a life sentence here. Of course, we know about that in our justice system, but no parole. <laughs> He had an opportunity, 
he blew it big time because he wasn't willing to forgive as he had been forgiven. And based upon that, Jesus gives our concluding statement. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is one of those times when it's really hard to squirm out of this, you know? Because he uses the term, every one of you, me and everyone in this room, everyone in our race, if we don't forgive, the judgment that came upon Tom for his mistreatment of Jerry will be reflected in the judgment that God has upon us. Now that doesn't mean that forgiveness is a requirement in order for us to be saved. <coughs> Lest you were thinking that. But it does mean that a person who doesn't appreciate the forgiveness that God has given them and how infinite our debt is to him because of his greatness. We have received that forgiveness in theory. But a person who has no appreciation for the forgiveness he's received and withholds forgiveness from a fellow believer especially, that's an indication that it's an unforgiven state that the person's heart is not right with God. One of the other things that makes this passage a little more cringy, I know I'm using a term that I'm not familiar with, and I guess it's just cringe, isn't it? <clears throat> He says, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And immediately we think, but they've hurt me so bad. I am still stinging from what this person or what this group did to me. I am still wrestling with the emotions, with the feelings that come from being sinned against. And I don't want to diminish the importance of that sin at all. So it does raise the question, how can I forgive like this? So here are a few things that I hope are practical that we can take with us. How can we forgive others from our heart? If you are a disciple of Christ, and it's important to stress that, because there's no way you can do this unless you have the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's the first thing. It's impossible with men, but with God all things are possible. So pray that his spirit within you will work in you to honor him. That's the first thing we need to do is to recognize I can't do this by myself, but thankfully, that's why God gave us his spirit. It enables us, it empowers us, it changes us so that we are no longer in a position where we're going, there's nothing I can do about this, I'm helpless. No, we're not helpless. We have the helper. 
Secondly, we need to look at our debt of sin and dishonor to God accurately. And that will improve our perspective of others' debts to us. If we realize, if we really realize that our debt was unpayable and God forgave us at the cost of the death of his son, then our forgiveness of others has to be easier. I'm not saying easy, but easier because we have been forgiven. And their debt against us is much, much smaller. It's infinitesimal compared to our debt to God. So pray for an accurate view of your own unpayable debt before him. And then look at what it says in Luke 7, 47. <clears throat> he who is forgiven little loves little. So not only do we have an accurate view of our debt, how well do you grasp the immensity of what you've been forgiven and the infinite cost to the Father in the death of his only Son? It's not only that our debt is huge, but because of that, our forgiveness is huge. Pray for humble recognition of how much you were forgiven and the price Jesus paid for your forgiveness so that love for your debtors may develop. Now, as we kind of finish this message up today, I want to take a look at something that's kind of confusing if you read the New Testament carefully. That is that there are some passages which seem to speak of forgiveness as unconditional and universal, and there are other passages which say, well, as this one does, okay, let's look at, look at the attitude of forgiveness first, but I'll explain the other one later. We need to pursue the attitude of forgiveness within our heart, which our forgiving Father requires towards all people. And I'm saying, since he's, well, actually, just look at the, the verse. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That's a very unlimited type of forgiveness that is being commanded of us. It doesn't matter who the person is that sinned against us. It doesn't matter even the intensity of the sin against us. If we have anything against anyone, we are to forgive. It's tall order. Confess the bad attitudes provoked by your offender, okay? The offender is still the offender. They've still sinned against you. But the problem is 
we've got a problem in our hearts and it has to be dealt with. So confess the bad attitudes that are provoked by the offender, which make you unlike your heavenly father. And those things will imprison you emotionally. The person who feels like, I cannot forgive, they're actually imprisoned by those feelings. They're actually being held captive by things that are not worthy of our Father in heaven, that are not worthy of our obedience. Look at what he says in Ephesians. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So there's an outline. If you might want to ask yourself the question, do I have any of those attitudes in my heart? If you do, confess them because God does forgive, but he doesn't want us to live in those things. And if we do hang on to those feelings of, of hurt and feelings of desire for vengeance and everything else, it is only going to make our lives more difficult and make us ineffective as servants of Jesus Christ. So we should confess them. Recognize that repentance by the offender might not occur. But you must have a forgiving posture. There are times when you cannot ask forgiveness of someone because they've passed away, they've moved away, they've changed their phone number. I mean, there are a number of different things that can happen to make it impossible for us to pursue forgiveness of somebody directly. But we can look to our hearts and say, Lord, do I have a forgiving heart towards whoever has sinned against me in the past. Pray that our Lord will grant the cleansing of your own heart and the Spirit's power to love even your enemies that you may forgive them. Pursue forgiveness that is reconciliation with the offender when possible. Because there are other passages that are not so universal, so unconditional, and just saying, forgive everyone. When it comes to a brother, it's a little different, but not for the reason that you think. Look at what Luke says in chapter 17. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now we're talking about within the family of God. You may not be able to do anything in terms of reconciliation with some people, especially unbelievers. Because you know the thing that we have that the unbeliever doesn't have? We have the Spirit of God. 
So unbelievers are very unlikely to ever repent. They might, if God works in them, but they're very unlikely to repent. But a brother, on the other hand, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Once again, we're back to that command, just like Todd expressed last week. We are commanded to rebuke our brothers when sin occurs. And especially if it's sin against us, we do need to command their repentance. We do need to tell them, you're wrong. And then, if he repents, forgive him. Now, that doesn't mean that if he doesn't repent, you can go, well, you've always been a so-and-so anyway, right? The point is, Hopefully, you've already worked on the attitude of your own heart in forgiveness. Now, what we're looking for is to reconcile between brothers. It's to reconcile with other people who are in the family of God. If repentance is offered, forgiveness must be granted. If the person refuses to repent, it's on them at that point. It's not on you because you've had the attitude of forgiveness in your heart. I hope that makes sense. Pray for spiritual strength and the heart to obey and honor your Father. By rebuking a sinning disciple and seeking their repentance and reconciliation. But that's not the end as well as being willing to be rebuked for your own sin. Nobody has the gift of rebuking. We all have the command to rebuke a person who is in sin. And we also always have to be ready to say, am I included in that? In other words, have to take the log out of my own eye before I want to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. The last aspect of forgiveness is that forgiveness and justice are not contrary to each other. God is both just and forgiving. How could he be both? Our sins were paid for, but they were paid for by Christ, not by us. So God has maintained his justice. He is not... He is not being unjust when he forgives people because the forgiveness is based upon his son's death, his son paying the obligation. In our case, if there has been abuse, if there has been harm that is done by somebody else, that's where the law comes in. Because in the same way that God uses his justice and, and paid our price through the death of his son. He also appointed government. And so if something is happening that is against the law, then it's totally within God's granting us ability to pursue legal help, to pursue law enforcement becoming involved to resolve issues. 
It doesn't mean that we can't forgive the person, but there are consequences. Is it a last thought? Uh, right before the, uh, the band comes back up, David, he, he committed those heinous sins. He was confronted, he was rebuked, he repented, and he wrote Psalm 51. But you know, there still were consequences. He lost the son that was the result of his relationship with Bathsheba, and he had problems with his family from that point on to the end of his life. So there are consequences that may, may be involved even when forgiveness has been granted. The law does have a place. And the last thing I'll say is, you see there at the bottom of the slide, this is a huge topic. I just feel like I've been able to scratch the surface. Excellent book that I recommend for anybody who wants to understand more about forgiveness. It's called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? And it's written by Timothy Keller. So if you're interested in that, that is, uh, that is well worth your read.